Hey, good morning to our Loring Park campus. We are so proud of you guys. The stories that we hear about how God is using you in the city is inspiring, and I'm proud of the way that you're representing him in culture. To our Edina campus, so proud of you as well. Love hearing the stories of how God is using you to make an impact on the neighbors right around your campus and can't wait to hear more of those stories. And to those of you who are watching online or those of you here on our Eden Prairie campus in the great room, just wanna say to you, welcome. We love you as well and proud of how God's using you in the culture. You're here in a great week. We're in the second week of our brand new series on Daniel. It's a series about living on faith in a secular world. And many of you know that it can be difficult in a culture that seems like it is constantly shifting to live for Christ. Sometimes that costs us something, and sometimes it's difficult to do so. Pastor Dale preached the first message in this series last week. If you didn't see it, I want to encourage you, go back, check out that message, because he laid a great foundation of what the book of Daniel is all about. In fact, he talked about the fact that when you live in a secular culture, there are things that you can do as followers of Jesus Christ that will help you make an impact. One of those things is to be a people who live a biblical lifestyle, speaking the truth in love to a culture that sometimes doesn't want to hear it. He talked about demonstrating God's love, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, and recognizing that God has placed you right where you are, for such a time as this. In his sovereignty, God knew that you would be alive in the year 2022. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are part of a remnant that is a holy remnant that God has called to live and to make a difference in our community. In the summer of 1987, I began my college experience, and I'll never forget those days. I had moved from Chicago, Illinois, to Lynchburg, Virginia, and it, you, you can't have two cultures that are more dislike each other here in the United States. And I remember uh, that move being a move that I was excited about. I was excited about what the next four years would hold, but when I got there, I became a little bit disillusioned. I was lonely for home. The people talked with a little bit of a strange accent, and I, I wasn't used to that. I remember thinking that some of the rules in the campus seemed a little bit strange. And I remember calling my parents on the phone and saying, Mom and Dad, I just want to come home. I'm done. This isn't working for me. None of my friends went to that school. I was 764 miles away from home. Is there a way that you can just let me come home, Mom and Dad? And in their wisdom and in their love and in their grace, they said, no, Brian, there's not a chance that you're coming home. Give it a few more weeks and see what God does. And I'm so glad I listened to them because those four years would change my life. I'd move from being an accounting major to a pastoral ministries major. I would meet the love of my life who would become my wife and God would change me. But maybe you're like I was in college. Maybe you're in a spot in life where you find yourself surrounded in a culture that seems different, a culture that doesn't quite seem like the culture that you're used to. Maybe the people talk funny. Maybe there's a different language. Maybe there are some customs that are different. Maybe you're visiting Wooddale Church and this culture seems a little bit different to you. If you find yourself now or in the future in a culture that seems strange, take note, the Bible has some people who faced that as well. And we read about their story in the book of Daniel. These were men who were living in a strange land, but they didn't go there voluntarily. They were kidnapped by a powerful and a cruel ruler. And they were forced to become part of what would become an elite group of future governmental leaders. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they had a friend named Daniel. They were from the land of Judah, and they were probably homesick, afraid, and wondering what God was doing with them. 
they were probably also absolutely blown away by their surroundings. Take a look at the beginning of Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. These were sharp guys. They were the best of the best. They were either part of the royal family in Jerusalem or they were part of the nobility. Renowned Old Testament scholar Leon Wood wrote that Nebuchadnezzar was not content to merely take control of the leading cities of the ancient Near East world, but he also desired the procurement of able young men whom he might relocate to Babylon as prospective government personnel. It is likely in each city he was, that each city was forced to give him their finest. Among those from Jerusalem were Daniel and his three friends. Listen, they were here because one of the cruelest dictators in the history of the world, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, had forced them to come. Nebuchadnezzar had taken the throne of his own father upon his father's death. Babylonia's empire was a burgeoning empire. Nebuchadnezzar, before his reign, was a brilliant military strategist, and he would take that into his rule. He was responsible for expanding the borders of Babylonia, and when he became the king, he continued in that conquest. He would surround himself with the brightest and the best from all of these cities that he conquered because he wanted Babylonia to continue to be a force to be reckoned with. Babylonia was located in what is today modern-day Iraq. Its capital was the city of Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar lived and ruled from. It was also one of the most beautiful and progressive cities on planet Earth. You can do a Google search and you can look up pictures of the city of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon, and you will see some of the, the, the pictures and the artist renderings. And what you'll see is a beautiful city. It was opulent. It was full of technology in an early time. It was a city that was magnificent by any account. Nebuchadnezzar's own palace was a grand palace, but that was just part of it. There was a gate called Ishtar Gate that you can go to a museum and, and see part of that beautiful column that made up Ishtar Gate, and it is one of the most beautiful pieces of ancient architecture in the world. There were 43 temples in Babylon. There was a street called Procession Street that would run alongside of the Euphrates River, and it was absolutely beautiful, paved with imported limestone, sometimes reaching 65 feet wide. The hanging gardens of Babylon were located in the city. The temple of Marduk was in the city. It was a city that had a ziggurat in it. It was an incredible, incredible city. 
And I believe that Daniel and his friends, finding themselves in this strange and beautiful country where nothing was familiar, the religion was different, the city very different than Jerusalem, a city ruled by an egomaniacal man, would have felt themselves in awe and would have felt themselves incredibly uncomfortable. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to go with my son, Christopher, on an eighth grade field trip. Now, my son is now a grown man and has a child of his own, but, but Christopher in eighth grade and his classmates were so excited about the trip that they were going to take to Chicago. Now, I grew up in the Chicago area. I couldn't wait to take these Minnesota kids there. And when we got to the city, the guys that I had assigned to me couldn't stop looking at all the skyscrapers. And they were pointing up at these beautiful buildings. Five of the six largest buildings in the United States are in the city of Chicago. Their mouths were just agape everywhere we went. And I think that that's probably what it was like for Daniel and the men in Babylon absolutely in awe of what they saw. But keep in mind that these kids got to go on a field trip. Daniel and his friends were captives. You remember what was happening to these guys? The chief of the officials had a job, and his job was to deprogram the Jewish culture out of Daniel and his friends. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. They were men that um, were essentially being deprogrammed so that they could be reprogrammed as leaders of a nation. And it's in the next verse, verse 8, that we're going to learn our first lesson for today. And lesson number one is this, that living by faith in a secular world begins by building a strong foundation that is rooted in Christ. And I wonder, is that true of you? If you were to take a look at the foundation of your faith life, is it a foundation that is strong and can stand the tests that come against it? Look what verse 8 says, But Daniel and resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And, the, and he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself in this way. You see, Daniel and his friends lived lives of no compromise. They knew that if they were to make a compromise on what it was that they were to eat and drink, they would essentially be going against what their religion their Judaism had taught them. They were servants of the Most High God. When their faith came under fire, they said that they would rather follow God than disobey his commands. The men asked for permission not to defile themselves by eating the royal food and the royal wine, and the official initially balks at this idea. I mean, why would he allow them to eat something different than the rest of the men? The last thing that official wanted was for Daniel and his men to look weaker than the other men who were there. So his, Daniel and his friends convinced the official to let them try to do an experiment. Feed us nothing but vegetables and give us nothing but water to drink for the next 10 days. And at the end of those 10 days, if we appear weaker, if we appear somehow less than the rest of these people, then we'll go ahead and we'll eat what everybody else is eating. But if not, let us continue to do what we do. And the test works. And from that point forward, Daniel and his friends were fed only vegetables and water. They didn't cave to the ways of the Babylonians. And early on, these men had learned a lesson. And that is this, that when the heat is on, a strong foundation allows us to stand under pressure. Let me say that again. When the heat is on, a strong foundation allows us to stand up under the pressures that we face in life. 
And maybe your life is evidence to that. Recently, a coworker told me about her daughter, and I'm so proud of this young woman. So there's this young woman who grew up at Wooddale Church, had a great family, wonderful foundation in the education that she received here. And she's at a Christian college, large school, somewhere here in the country. And at her school, she is thriving. So much so that some of the upperclassmen noticed her and invited her to become a part of one of the most exclusive clubs for women on that campus. And she was excited about the prospects, excited about the fact that she was going to be included in this club of some of the who's who of women on her campus. And when she got the invitation, she noticed that there was a line that said, we want you to join this club so that you can be all that you can be, so that you can be an Athena. Now, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that Athena is a Greek goddess. Athena is the Greek goddess of war, of handicraft, and of personal reason. And this freshman student who grew up at Wooddale Church thought to herself, there's just something that doesn't sound right about this. I'm at a Christian college, and I'm being asked to be an Athena instead of being asked to be somebody whose identity is found and wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And so she wrote a letter declining the invitation, a hard letter to write because she was so excited about it. And she said that she'd rather not join a group whose identity is found in a Greek goddess. She'd rather join a group whose identity is found in Jesus Christ. It's been said that when the pressure is on, when we're squeezed in our life, you can find out what somebody's made of by what comes out of them. This young student is somebody who showed what she's made of. She's somebody who has a faith that is rooted on Christ that helped her to stand up for pressure in the most unlikely of places. I'm sure you've been there too. There are times in our lives where we face ethical dilemmas at work or at school, maybe at home, maybe in our neighborhood, and that ethical dilemma has put us in a spot where culture says one thing and God's word says another thing and we have a choice to make. And the choice is, are we going to stand with culture or are we going to stand with what God's word says? What is it that's going to come out of us when our faith comes under fire? Daniel and his friends recognize that their lives are a mist. What mattered most to them was their relationship with God. You know, it's interesting to me that they didn't refuse to take the Babylonian names. They didn't judge the Babylonian culture. After all, these were Babylonians. They didn't have a relationship with God. They didn't expect people who didn't know God to act like it. They didn't refuse to learn the language. They didn't refuse to learn the customs of their captors. With dignity and respect, these men explained their convictions, and then they asked for the opportunity to live by those convictions. They stood apart, and God was honored. You see, following God always pleases the Lord. God had favor on them. Look at uh, what happens later in Daniel 1, verses 18 to 20. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. That is the favor of God. That is the favor of God that was upon those men because the men honored him. The men must have questioned God about why they had to be in captivity. The answer was that God wanted them there. 
God had ordained it. God knew that they were going to be there. And their lesson is a lesson that for centuries has allowed us to to grow and understand what it means to be a bright and a shining light in a dark place. He wanted them to live with no compromise so that future generations, like the generation that is growing up today, can understand what it means to be a committed follower of God no matter the cost. And he wanted their captors to be amazed as well. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Pastor Dale talked about this last week. And in the dream, he calls his magicians and he calls his enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers to his side to explain what the dream means, but they can't do it. And so then Daniel is brought before him and you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a massive statue that had a hat of gold, which represented the Babylonian empire. And then beyond that, there, was, uh, uh, there, were, there were arms of, of, of silver and thighs of brass and legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. And each one of them represented another empire that would come. Daniel boldly told Nebuchadnezzar that one day God would set up a kingdom that would rule over all other kingdoms. These kingdoms that we're a part of are temporary kingdoms. There's no empire that has lasted forever. And the Babylonian empire was, was, no, uh, was an empire that would surely see that happen. But by Daniel's third chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has convinced himself that his empire is not going to end. And so he decides, I'm going to construct a massive statue. And he makes a statue that's 90 feet tall and it's nine feet wide. And you remember the head of the statue of the dream is made of gold and it represents Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Nebuchadnezzar's statue is entirely made of gold. It's as if he is thumbing his nose up at God. Some scholars say that this was an expression of rebellion against God's revelation. So proud was he of his accomplishments and his statue that Nebuchadnezzar would say, okay, I want all the leaders to bow before this statue. And that would include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, living by faith in a secular world requires us to fear the disapproval of God more than, more than the disapproval of man. That's what they're going to experience next. Because if they weren't going to eat the food at the table that the king had given to them, that looked like pretty good food, they surely weren't going to bow to the idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had vowed to live for God no matter the cost. They would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. For them to bow down would have been a violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments, that you would have no other God before God, and that you shall make no idol that you bow down to in worship. And their refusal would get them into hot water. Nebuchadnezzar had declared that whoever didn't bow down before the idol would face the penalty of being thrown into a fiery furnace, a cruel form of death that the Babylonian empire was particularly fond of. But death wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's greatest fear. They were more terrified at not pleasing God than they were their own death. They lived as servants of the Most High God. When their faith was put under fire, they trusted that God would rescue them from the hand of a mighty king. And even if God would choose not to rescue them, they were willing to give their very lives for the service of the Lord. Why? Because they had built a strong foundation that allowed them to stand when their faith came under fire. And those stories are repeated over and over again in our generation. There are stories of brothers and sisters in Christ who face persecution around the world every day. For them to follow Jesus means that they put their life on the line. 
There is one group of people here in the Twin Cities that it is known of that if you are a Christian of that particular nationality, you are a dead person from that particular nationality. So great is the cost to follow Christ for some people. And it should be for us too. Are we willing to pay the price to follow God no matter the cost? I'm reminded of an interview that Pastor Rick Warren, the now former pastor of Saddleback Church, had with Pierce Morgan on CNN several years ago. Pierce Morgan was interviewing him about one of the hot topic buttons of the day. And he just, you know, wanted everything for, for in his interview for Rick Warren to compromise. He's like, Rick, can you ever see a time where you might change your mind on this issue? And it was an issue that scripture speaks directly about. And Rick very boldly said, no, I, I really can't. And then Rick said something I'll never forget. He said, I fear the disapproval of God more than your disapproval and the disapproval of society. And I think so many of us have that the other way around. We fear the disapproval of society and the disapproval of of man more than we fear the disapproval of God. And when society is what we fear more than we fear God, we've got it all backwards. That's the kind of faith, the faith that fears God more than society, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. And you would think that, boy, God is just going to, God is going to show up in a powerful way. And he's going to deliver these guys from anything difficult that they might have to go through in their life. But look what happens when news of their uh, refusal to obey comes to Nebuchadnezzar. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What a huge question. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. That is a big but that these guys said. But if God doesn't show up, God's gonna work. And it leads to today's third lesson, which is this. Living by faith in a secular world means that we refuse to sacrifice the truth of God for the easy way out. Living by faith in a secular world means we refuse to sacrifice the truth of God for the easy way out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a faith that we see throughout the Bible. There's a story of David and his, or Jonathan and his young armor bearer, who many think is David. And they, they're, they're in a battle in the Old Testament, and they're going up this rock cropping to face a much greater and a far superior enemy who has the advantage of being far above them. And David and Jonathan go up almost like wild men, and they say, perhaps God will go with us. That's what I see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a faith that perhaps God will go with them. Perhaps God will allow us to live. But even if he doesn't, 
We're not going to bow down to your image. What about you? What about me? Is our faith squarely with God or is it with the culture? These men trusted in the God of the unknown and their trust in God brought them to a terrifying space. So many times in my life, I've heard people say, hey, you know where the safest place to be is? It's in the center of God's will. I'm not sure that's true. Because sometimes when we follow God, God takes us to a place that is terrifying. Now, if we have an eternal perspective on life, yes, that's true. Because the moment we're absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. But the reality is that sometimes God is going to call us to places that don't look very safe. God's going to take us to places that are going to challenge us in our faith. He's going to call us to live on mission for him. He's going to call us to live a holy life when it seems like culture is living anything but a holy life. He's going to call us to sometimes have to stand firm at a place where we're the only one who's standing firm for our faith. God calls us to a life of adventure, a life of mission. And when the men obeyed, their mission took them to another unlikely place. It took them directly to the fiery furnace. That doesn't sound safe to me. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent The furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the moment that you are sentenced to go up to the top of that fiery furnace? You've served the king with honor. You have obeyed the Lord. You have a higher king who you love with all of your life, all of your strength. You, you, You have told the king that you would rather die a death of execution than follow his command to worship an idol. And so the king says, fine. And the execution method is fire. A fire that is so hot that the Bible tells us that the flame killed the very soldiers who brought Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the top of that furnace and threw them into the blazing furnace. You know, every week I talk to people at Wooddale Church who aren't at a literal fiery furnace, but they find themselves in a crucible. They find themselves in the fire For some of those people, the fire is at work. For some of them, it's at home, where they feel like I'm the only one who's a true follower of Jesus Christ. Some of my beautiful immigrant friends here at Wooddale Church have told me how much it costs them to follow Jesus. They're no longer invited to family gatherings. They're all alone. They're mocked. They're ridiculed. Maybe you've never been in a fiery furnace. None of us have. But you've been on the edge. You've been ridiculed and you've wondered, God, where are you? And you have felt alone in the culture. And you have felt alone in your faith. 
But I promise you that just as, it, as God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he is with you in your fire. When the men decided to trust God in the unknown, God met them in the fire. It wasn't before, didn't deliver them before they started to take the steps up. It was in the fire. And friends, God is going to meet you in the fire too, if that's where you find yourself today. By the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar repents and he is blown away at God's deliverance of the men. He sees the courage that they had and he can't deny that their love of God was greater than the fear of man. And he sees the fourth man, a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. The strong foundation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had helped them build a faith that helped them to stand strong in a pagan culture. Their fear of the disapproval of God more than the approval of culture changed their city. Their refusal to sacrifice the truth of God for the easy way out brought them in to and through that fire. And God wants to do the same in our lives. Listen, we can't be surprised when we face hard times in life. The Apostle Paul, writing to his young protege, Timothy, late in his life, said the following in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have been convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will face persecution from time to time. And what do we do in those situations? We endure it. We lean into Christ. This life is short. It's a mist. We appear for a little while, James tells us, and then we vanish. History is his story, not ours. We get to be bit players in the story of God. So may you have the courage to stand for him in this generation. Hey, as we close today, I want to I encourage you to do something. I want you to take stock of your foundation. If you were to buy a home that you wanted to renovate, you might take a look at the foundation of that home before you ever thought about purchasing it or renovating it. Because we know the stories of homes that have poor foundations. They, they end up being money pits and sometimes need to be torn down. Some of us, our foundation when it comes to faith is not a firm foundation. Every year, there are thousands of Christian students around the world who go off to universities and they too are deprogrammed. And many of them lose their faith because their faith was never a genuine faith. It wasn't a faith that had a strong foundation. If you're a mom or dad this week, this would be a great week to talk to your kids about faith. If your kids aren't involved in next-gen programming at Wooddale Church, make that a priority more than any other thing that they're a part of. Like, help your kids in this generation. Some of you, it's not that you need to do that with your kids. You need to do that with yourself. Maybe you're a new believer, and this idea of following Jesus is so brand new to you. Maybe you've never even made that commitment. Wooddale has a ministry here called One-to-One -one Discipleship. And I want to encourage you, if you have never been discipled, to get a discipler in your life who will help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's something that you'd like more information on, you can go to our website, wooddale.org mentoring, and it would be our joy and our honor to walk alongside of you in a mentoring ministry. One other way that you could shore up your faith this week would be to attend a movie. 
I know that sounds a little weird, but let me tell you something. Tim Mahoney from Wooddale Church runs a ministry called Thinking Man Films. And he has put together a, a series called Patterns of Evidence, which is meant to help Christians grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ and for you to bring maybe friends who are skeptics to, to see that our faith is a faith that has archaeological and historical evidence. And for the next two nights, Monday and Tuesday of this week, Fathom Events is uh, going to be playing in select theaters, Tim's newest film, and you can find information out at any one of your favorite movie sites. Uh, and we would love for you to find out more information. You can go to Patterns of Evidence slash Mount Sinai. As I close today, I'd be remiss if I didn't show you my favorite picture of the week. So this week, uh, I was blessed to welcome our third grandchild into the world. Isn't she beautiful? This is little Lainey Mae Schulenberg, my local grandchild, and my heart is bursting at the seams. And we knew that our son and daughter-in-law were going to have a little baby girl. We didn't know what her name would be. And for the last several months, every time they would come to our home or we'd go to their home, I would pray before we'd leave, and I'd pray for my granddaughter, and I would pray that God would help her to be a bright and shining light in her generation for Jesus Christ. This week, when my daughter-in-law told us what her name was, she said, Dad, you don't know this, but you've been praying for your granddaughter by name for the last several months. I said, what do you mean? They said, Lainey is short for Elaine, and it means bright and shining light. And our prayer is that our daughter will be a bright and shining light in her generation. Listen, that's what God's called all of us to be. And so like Lainey, may you be a bright and shining light in your generation. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for those who have listened today at our campuses all over the metro and those who are watching online. God, I thank you that you have not called us to do something that you will not see us through. Father, you have not called us to be a people who are afraid of culture. Lord, you've called us to love the culture that you have allowed us to live in and to be a shining bright in this bright light in this generation. So God, would you help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who will live bright for you in this generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.